Welcome to Malpractice Insider, a patient safety podcast of case studies from the Harvard Medical System, from CRICO, the insurance program for all of the Harvard Medical Institutions and their affiliates, bringing a data-driven approach to reducing medical error through clinical analysis of malpractice claim. I injured my foot after a box fell on it. They dressed it up in the ER. I think they told me how to fix the splint or something if it was hurting my foot. I don't know. Anyway, I go home and after a few days, it's hurting bad. So I go back to the ER because I'm in a lot of pain and it looks bad. They said I got an infection and then they said they have to cut off part of my foot. A 62-year-old male with a history of diabetes, neuropathy, peripheral vascular disease and obesity presented to the ED after suffering for three days with a contused foot after a heavy box fell on it. On exam, the foot was badly bruised, red, and swollen. The patient had full range of motion and there was no skin tear. Foot x-rays were negative and the patient was diagnosed with a contusion. Treatment included immobilization with a splint and limited weight bearing. A posterior splint to stop the patient from bending and flexing the injured foot was placed by a patient care assistant. No patient evaluation after the splint is placed was documented. The physician gave the patient discharge instructions that included removing the splint when showering or if it is too tight. The patient was also instructed to return immediately if he noted any color changes, increased pain, sensory changes, or skin breakdown. Follow-up was recommended with orthopedics in one week. Written instructions were not provided to the patient. Two days later, the patient returned to the ED with color changes and complaints of pain in the injured foot. The patient reported that he had not removed the splint since it was placed in the ED. The patient had a necrotic infection, and despite medical treatment, the patient required partial amputation of his injured foot. In a lawsuit naming the emergency medicine physician and a nurse, the patient alleged that a dressing was applied too tightly, compromising the circulation and resulting in a gangrenous foot, requiring amputation. The nurse was subsequently dropped from the case. The case against the physician defendant went to trial five and a half years after the initial ED visit, resulting in a verdict in favor of the defendant. Joining us now to talk about the risk management and patient safety aspects of this case is Dr. Carla Ford, an internist and a consulting physician for CRICO. Carla, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. When you review cases like these, where do you typically see problems with discharge instructions that lead to harm or lead to lawsuits? Well, typically these occur in the emergency room, and the most common thing we see is a lack of clear instructions about follow-up, essentially who the patient should see and follow-up and when. Uh, A a general instruction such as follow-up with your PCP is not nearly as effective or Uh, as safe as giving the patient an instruction to follow up with, you know, Dr. X on Tuesday. Uh, And in a perfect world, you'd actually be making an appointment for them. So that's one issue is where the patient doesn't know when to follow up. Tom, there was a case uh, that had to do with a patient who came in with an obstructing ureteral stone, and the emergency room provider uh, knew the patient would require some type of instrumentation. but just noted that the patient should follow up with urology. And uh, this was a male patient who ultimately returned with sepsis two days later, not having seen urology, and suffered severe complications. So the lack of a clear plan about when 
and the patient should follow up was part of the issue. Uh, a second problem that we see is that sometimes the discharge instructions are really actually don't make much sense. Uh, for instance, if a patient has abdominal pain and they still have pain at the time of discharge, say they came in with severe pain and now their pain is down to a 4 out of 10, sometimes the instruction will say, uh, come back if your pain returns. Well, the patient has pain at the time of discharge, and so that instruction is nonsensical and uh, is confusing to patients who then sometimes stay home uh, thinking that it was just okay to have the pain. A third thing uh, that sometimes happens is that the uh, discharge instructions are, are begun, that the provider begins to write them prematurely, uh, sort of anticipating uh, what the discharge diagnosis will be, uh, sort of trying to wrap things up and move things forward without uh, really uh, being aware of all the test results as they come back. And so, for instance, a set of discharge instructions won't reference, say, a white blood cell count differential or CAT scan that's been performed after uh, the discharge instructions were initiated. And I think that these are all things uh, that can lead to difficulty explaining uh, later on uh, exactly what the provider meant and uh, deciding whether that was adequate discharge instructions. And in this case, the patient didn't understand what to monitor and when to be concerned or how concerned to be. In addition to the terrible outcome the patient experienced, the emergency department physician and nurse had to endure five years of this case working through the system, even though that was a verdict in favor of the defense at the end. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a tragic outcome for this patient. Uh, there are several issues with this case, Tom, I think that have to do with understanding the actual patient. So the, the problem of a contused foot is sort of one issue, but when you apply that to a diabetic obese patient with neuropathy, there are additional concerns. For instance, one instruction apparently verbally was to come back if there was more pain, but this patient had documented diabetic neuropathy, and in fact, that's why he'd been able to walk around on it for three days without coming in. So to ask a neuropathic patient, you know, come back if you have pain, that person's going to have a very high pain tolerance because of the neuropathy. A second issue is that this was a very obese patient, and there uh, should have been concern that he might not actually be able to remove the splint and replace it. I mean, many of our very elderly or very obese patients actually cannot put on and remove their own shoes, and so uh, the prospect of, of taking off or putting back on a posterior splint and wrapping it might have been something the patient both didn't understand and was unable to do. Uh, we talk a lot about how to teach people or uh, what's the best way for them to learn the things we need them to do. And uh, in this case, it would have been better for the uh, physician assistant to actually just watch the patient, remove the splint and put it back on so that they would understand how to do that and be sure that it was understood. Another thing that was very important would have been to document the actual appearance of the toes, I mean, the vascular supply, uh, before the patient was discharged, and that was another uh, documentation lapse in this case. Well, what are some opportunities to improve processes or, or systems to prevent this kind of outcome that we saw in this case? Well, I think in general, there are a few take-home points uh, about discharge instructions. 
I mean, if you think about a patient who's been in the emergency room, people have provided good care, you know, taking a history, doing a physical, doing labs. They've come up with a diagnosis and a treatment plan, but that all needs to be translated into an appropriate discharge set of instructions that the patient can understand. And I would say uh, that the points I would make is to be sure that the instructions are clear and they are written down. Verbal instructions, five years later, no one remembers what they actually said. And uh, that becomes very tricky in terms of just the legal aspects of a case. The second thing is to be very clear about who the patient is to follow up with and when. The third thing I would say is clearly identify any tests that are still pending, uh, which people sometimes do, but, but there is this gap sometimes between when the discharge instructions are written uh, and when they're actually given to the patient. And during that time, a test result can come back, say a white count differential or a CAT scan result that doesn't make it into the discharge summary and actually doesn't make it into the clinical formulation. So uh, I think prematurely writing instructions is uh, just sort of a bad habit. Uh, and finally, I'd say just be sure that the discharge instructions have relevance to that particular patient. Don't tell the patient in pain to return if the pain returns. Uh, it's just confusing. Or make sure that uh, the patient has the ability to comply with the instructions as written. Those are the things that I think would be uh, most beneficial, both at providing safe care and uh, achieving the result we're looking for, but also avoiding litigation. Well, thank you, Carla. This is an important ongoing challenge. Thanks for having me, Tom. Dr. Carla Ford is an internist and physician consultant for CRICO. I'm Tom Agello. Thank you for listening to Malpractice Insider, a podcast of case studies from CRICO in the Harvard Medical System. Find all of our podcasts at www.rmf.harvard.edu slash podcasts and subscribe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and then rate and review the show to help others find it too.